Father, thank you for your loving kindness, your steadfast faithfulness, your mercy, and the reality that you've invited us into your presence. God, asking that you would now work in our hearts, move in our lives, pray that the Spirit would be present in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would nerd out with me on Bible stuff for the next 10 minutes, I would really, really appreciate that this morning. We are going to do something here and uh, how we're going to read the scriptures uh, that's hopefully going to make some sense to you in just a moment uh, and going to also help you in further Bible reading as well. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project often refers to the scriptures as meditation literature. Meditation literature is not something that you simply empty your mind of to have thoughtless moments, but it's literature that you literally spend time thinking, dwelling, processing, re-looking at. Now, because of that, how we love to read stories is in a very linear manner, right? We like the beginning, we like the middle, and we love the end. In fact, when a movie starts with the end, I'm always looking at either my children or my wife, and they're looking at me going, what in the world is going on? And then the movie ends up telling the story of what's going on. The Bible is God's story, and it's going somewhere. It's leading us somewhere, but it's also a story in which you must read to understand what's going on even there in the beginning. So, you won't fully understand Scripture unless you read Scripture to explain Scripture. And so there are things that get revealed that then make sense to what is going on earlier. You guys tracking with me on all that? Meditation literature. It's to cause you to go back and to think, what did I just read and how does this apply to that? And what I want to do this morning is set the table for the next three weeks, as Michael and I highlighted chapters 11, 12, and 13, we're going to look at three big ideas that stem from one of the very main parables, or a meta-parable that we'll get into in a little bit and explain some of that, which gives understanding to the entirety of chapters 11, 12, and 13. But I have to catch us up a bit because we had Easter last week, and though we tracked through Matthew, we diverted a little bit. But what I want us to see here is that up to this point in Matthew's telling of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there's been a lot of buzz happening around Jesus. He drew a large crowd out as he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he was attracting many people. But at this point... You have three classifications or three groups, and I think Britain's got a slide up here. There's going to be like a huge slide, which I doubt you'll be able to see all of, yeah, all of that. And then in a moment, he's going to zoom in on the one section I want us to look at. But there are three groups of people in here. There are those that absolutely despise and hate Jesus. They don't want anything to do with him other than to take him down. There's another group of people. I would say this is a very small grouping of people up to this point. Even some of those who are really close to Jesus, they're around Jesus, 
um, there is this grouping of people who, who have accepted or are starting to believe he is who he's saying he's to be. And then there's another large gathering of people who are going, now, I got to classify this statement. They're neutral to Jesus, and that goes against everything we've heard, either for or against Jesus. But they're neutral towards Jesus in this moment because they haven't yet decided, am I for him or am I against him? Somebody like John the Baptist, who had been preaching about Jesus, talking about Jesus, pointing others to Jesus, but while in prison, he said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Or is there another yet to come? We have not had Peter's great confession yet of you are the Christ, though they've been sent out and done some pretty incredible stuff in the name of Jesus. They're being drawn to Jesus, but there hasn't been these definitive statements made yet that we trust, believe that you are the one who has been sent. And so what this whole unit of scripture in chapters 11, 12, and 13 are doing is they're giving us examples of where people are at towards Jesus. Sounds like a lot like today, where people are at towards Jesus. You're for him, you're against him, or you're really curious about him this morning. You're really curious. And this morning we get this look at the soils of our hearts and our responses to the kingdom. And it's given in a parable, a story format, a parable being just this like pithy story statement that draws quick points out. Now, Arthur Miller, playwright, you guys familiar with Arthur Miller, Death of a Salesman? That's like the only reason I'm familiar with Arthur Miller. I couldn't name uh, another one there. But he said this, in every successful drama, there is something which makes a person say, hey, that's me. The story becomes a mirror in which self-recognition produces self-understanding. Now, this morning, Americans are absolutely captivated by stories. We have a multi-billion dollar industry known as Hollywood, which has made a whole lot of money selling stories. Some good, some bad, some horrible, some captivating. Regardless of that, we are having our attention drawn to stories because there's something in them in which resonates with us, whether the hero wins the justice happens to the villain. There's something that takes place and we look at stories and we can get a bit of a picture even of ourselves in those stories. And Jesus in chapter 13 is going to tell a block of stories or parables and Matthew intentionally blocks these together and I believe every single one of them are very explicit in what they're going to tell us what they're about, the kingdom of God. And he's using all kinds of examples that would resonate with the people around him, being a mostly agrarian culture or a culture that was fishing and selling in the marketplaces. He's going to use the very examples that would connect with the people around him in order to get them to think about their own life and what Jesus in turn is saying. These stories relate to them, and hopefully they begin to stir something up inside the people. Now, these stories, they're parables. Let me give you a good short summary. This comes from Tim Mackey, once again from the Bible Project. The parables aren't simply a kind of neat, clever way 
that Jesus taught moral or ethical truths. They're not simply a way that he taught systematic theology through symbols. Please, church, do not try to do that with parables. You get some weird things. They are an expression in which the service of his announcement of the kingdom of God. Jesus is choosing to use these parables, these stories, to announce, to talk about the kingdom of God. Now, parables are not unique to Jesus. There's parables that some of the ones in which he tells were very similar to other parables in his day. The Old Testament, even in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 5, tells of a parable. So parables are not unique or only to Jesus, but a parable is a fictional story. It is not allegory as if every single detail has spiritual significance. There is generally, but not universally, one salient point, one theme, one issue that the parable is trying to get at. Now, why is Jesus using them? We'll read explicitly in a little bit, but to conceal and to reveal. To conceal and to reveal. Now, Kyle Snodgrass, what a last name, by the way. It's just epic. In his book, Stories with Intent, this is a little bit lengthier, but I believe this is incredibly important for us this morning, says this, direct communication is important for conveying information. Direct communication is like when I tell my kids, I want you to do this. Implied communication might be a conversation or a story in which I hope that they get the point that they need to clean the basement, clean their rooms, all right? Direct communication is you need to do this. Now listen, this is what he says. Learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is somebody who already thinks they understand. Direct communication to somebody who thinks they already understand is an incredibly difficult task especially if you're Carson teaching eighth graders, right? Because they know everything already. And you use direct communication, and they look at you like you know nothing. And you're like, my degree says otherwise. All right, direct communication, things people already understand. People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up conforming the message into the channels of their current understanding of reality. We could spend a lot of time on this alone, especially in this cultural moment. Let me keep moving on, though. But indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw the listener to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and move to action. Jesus' parables are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, reconsider their way of viewing reality, and to change their behavior. See, what he's saying is when you have this sort of just direct communication, it can be dismissed because somebody's already so entrenched in their view, they've already formulated their argument to your direct communication before you've even finished half your sentence. They've already got the reason for why they don't agree or believe what you are directly communicating to them. But parables 
are this stab at getting them to look at something in a completely indirect way. It's a way to break through in communication, to break us out of the reality in which we're living in, the way we're thinking and believing, and to see something to form a different kind of thinking. What they typically are, are subversive critiques on culture. If any of you like stand-up comedians, anybody in here? Man, I love them. I was once told as a pastor, you should study from them, all right? Because people will like you more. You'll be funnier. That'll, good, that'll be good for you. Well, stand-up comedians, they are simply breaking down a lot of the cultural nuances that we all resonate with and feel in storytelling mode to give us a window into some of the lunacy that we believe or think or participate in. And they use humor to do this. That's what Saturday Night Live has made a living off of, subversive critiques of culture. This is why Jesus is telling these parables. It's a subversive critique of the religiosity, of the pharisaical views, of the way Israel has now established themselves. And he's trying to break through with the idea of what the kingdom actually looks like. Not only that, but a subversive critique is to move us towards a crisis moment or a moment of decision. The parable is a setup to get somebody to have to say, we're for you, we're against you. We agree with you, we disagree with you. But the parable is to push us to have to make a decision about Jesus. And in the end, as the one we're going to look at this morning, confirms the soil of our heart, whether it's the softness or hardness, to what's being talked about. This, for me, in understanding it, was a massive paradigm shift in how I read parables. Because the way in which I grew up in reading parables and being taught parables was to make a symbol out of everything that was happening and trying to determine and put an idea to every act, action, person in the story rather than understanding it's probably about one, as we said, salient point, one idea, which is to expose something in our hearts. You think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. People have had a heyday identifying each and every little thing in it. When in all reality, I guess I probably shouldn't spoil too much of it, but it's this idea of getting at what's it look like in the kingdom of God to even love those that are enemies. Very simple way to break that down. Here's another one. David and the prophet Nathan. Nathan points something out through storytelling, parable, could have been a true thing that happened, but for this setup, David did some pretty horrible stuff. If you don't know the story, you'd have to read about it, but basically murders a guy, steals his wife because he got her pregnant. Just typical Old Testament kind of stuff. All right, normal godly men kind of stuff, apparently. Okay, our heroes of the faith. David not being perfect. And he feels like, to some degree, maybe he's getting away with it a little bit. And Nathan comes to him, and as king... David would hear these kinds of trials in his day-to-day duties and life, and maybe this is a true story or not, but Nathan tells a story about a man who had a little lamb. And this little lamb was like in his house and ate with him, and they fed it the scraps, and the family hung on it and loved it and took care of it. He had a neighbor who had like 10,000 lambs. 
And the neighbor had a friend come into town, and out of an act of hospitality, he was supposed to feed this friend that came from out of town. And rather than take one of his own, because it would have been costly, he stole his neighbor's lamb, and he kills it, and he feeds that lamb to his friend visiting. And David is enraged at the injustice that has happened. And at that moment, see, it brought him to a moment of crisis. At that moment, Nathan says, David, you're that man. It's heavy. It's a window into the reality of his sinful heart. And then it reveals whether the softness of the soil is there or the hardness is there. And David weeps and repents of that. As Jesus is telling these stories, what was concealed, he's now revealing. And we see kingdom responses. Let me read one more thing from N.T. Wright. And then we're going to read this chapter. And then I'm going to have to just, I have way too much. It's going to be good, though. (laughs) N.T. Wright said, as part of his campaign, Jesus told stories. They were, for the most part, not simply illustrations. That's what preachers, their trick to decorate and abstract thought are complicated teaching. If anything, they were the opposite. Jesus' stories are designed to tease, to clothe the shocking and revolutionary message about God's kingdom and garb that would leave the listener wondering, trying to think it out. Meditation literature. There were stories that eventually caused Israel's leaders to decode his rich message in such a way as to frame a charge against him, either a blasphemy, we're going to see that in a moment, sedition, or leading the people astray. Whatever the parables are, they are not as children are sometimes taught in Sunday school, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Rather, they are expressions of Jesus' shocking announcement that God's kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. You can go on our webpage and you can grab these direct quotes and you can reread these and spend some time with them and think them through. Let me talk about this now a little bit this morning. What is Jesus's message? Well, let's read in Matthew chapter 13, starting verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered about him. He got into a boat and sat down, and while crowds stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they were withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, This is often how a lot of parables end, with you, the hearer, having to then decipher what is the message of Jesus. What's he trying to get across? Now, instead of reading, this is what Mackey says, of reading a parable and asking, how is the parable about me and my relationship to God? We should reverse it and ask, how is this about Jesus and his inauguration of God's kingdom? When we start there, we can begin to see the new way of living that Jesus began with his announcement of the kingdom arriving through him. 
when we read this, if you lived in the city and you had no idea about seeds and sowing, or I'm talking about our day and age, because that might be something that some city folk never come in contact with, they might go, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Even the very listeners who are in agrarian cultures are going to begin to go, we don't get what you're saying, Jesus. What did you just share? Now, we're going to get a little bit of an interlude here. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Is it direct communication so much better, Jesus? Just tell us you're the way. Tell us you're the one. He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets. This idea of secrets is probably a very poor rendering of the word that's used in Greek. It's really talking about the things that were unknown. They're now being made known to you. This mystery is being made clear. It's being revealed. It's revelatory to you who are listening and hearing, he says, of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has, he will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. And they're like, oh my goodness, Jesus, none of this makes any sense yet. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Now he's just quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah talking in some parabolic language from that section. Nor do they understand. And you can see the disciples as confused as an eight-year-old listening to me right now. Indeed, their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but under, not, never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with the ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. And turn, I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Huh, interesting. Because at this point, they're still as confused as you and I on this. We hear, we see. What do you mean, Jesus? He goes on, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Oh, they're starting to get clued in. What has everybody in Israel been waiting for? The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the Messiah, the one to bring it. Then he says this as Jesus spells it out for them. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the king, kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. This is what the birds are about. He says, people are going to hear the kingdom. This is descriptive of many people who are around Jesus, and they begin to hear, and they begin to see what he's doing, and it's just snatched away from them. They do not believe it. They don't want to receive it. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So there are going to be those that are moving towards Jesus. They're excited and they hear the word with joy, yet it has no root in himself, but endures for a little bit, for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. But, but Jesus, I trusted in you and tragedy still hit. Maybe you're not good. Maybe you're not king. Maybe you cannot or don't deserve to be trusted. I will now do this on my own. 
That's the mentality or idea. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Once again, the soil begins to have otherworldly things grow up around it, and it chokes out that good seed. As for what was sown on good soil, the one who hears the word and understand it, he indeed bears the fruit and yield. In one case, a hundred, in another, sixty, and in another, thirty. Now, this parable is a meta-parable. It means it's just this overarching, grand way of being able to read and understand the parables. Understanding in this section, it's setting us up for how to read the rest and what it talks about in the kingdom of God. If you were to read Psalm 1, Psalm 1 outlines how to read the rest of the Psalms. It declares, this is meditation literature, and this is what you're supposed to do. Like a tree firmly planted, you're supposed to think on, dwell on the words of the psalmist in order to understand what is being said. To understand what Jesus is saying here and to understand why Matthew has blocked this together as a unit, chapters 11, 12, and 13, it's so we get what Jesus is getting at. There are those who are going to be positive towards Jesus. They receive him. He is Messiah. There are going to be those who right then in that moment, they're neutral in the sense that they have yet to make a decision for Jesus, yet they're curious about Jesus, or they're like John the Baptist saying, but are you the Messiah? Can we trust you? Some of them are going to get choked out, burned up. Maybe they emotionally were committed to Jesus. Felt good to be in the church and to sing the songs and the smoke was just right and the lights hit me in the mood and all of a sudden I was overwhelmed by the burning in my bosom and I love Jesus now. And emotionally they're committed, but they're not wholly committed and they flame up and then burn out. Other people become intellectually curious about Jesus. They love theology and they love to study their hearts are far, far from God. Jesus wants us to be volitionally, willfully, all of us committed to him. And then you have the negative. Many of the Pharisees, many of the Romans hated Jesus. They crucified Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. This parable, this theme about his kingdom is as the seed in your heart working on a friendly environment. When you hear the word of God, what is your response? What is your reaction towards him? Now, in this big picture, Jesus is also critiquing the religious system of that day. You see, the Jews had this idea in their thinking that they were the family, the people of God. Paul is going to dismantle this in one sense. So I could get crucified over this real quick. But in Romans, he says, what advantage do you as Jews have? Say, you've been given the oracles of God. Therefore, you should have been even more responsive and responsible to responding to the Messiah when he showed up. No, you do not have an advantage if you are Jewish, is what he's saying. Because in Jesus... The entirety of the makeup of the family of God has actually been redesigned and fitted to the way it intentionally was supposed to be. And the Jews hearing this were like the favorite child in the family who always had everything given to them and would scoff at the other children when they got anything themselves. They don't deserve that. I'm the fa- I should be getting that. 
the Jews had moved themselves into their thinking to become an isolated group of people in which they forgot the mission of God was to bless the nations around them, not something they just hold for themselves. So in setting their rules and their regulations and in ways to try to live separate, this pharisaical mindset swept in amongst them, which really tried to push anybody not Jewish out rather than welcoming them in, in which they would remain in a position of superiority because they are God's favorites. That's how they understood the story. When really they were to be a vehicle in which the Messiah would come and restore shalom and restoration to the world at large. So when Jesus talks about the family of God as being like a seed that's just thrown out there, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, didn't matter. How dare you, Jesus? And he's critiquing their thought process. He's rewriting the script on what they thought of the kingdom. Their response is, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. Some of them are, Let's receive and accept him. Others are saying, we need to know more. These stories are leading them to this moment of crisis. Turn over to chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to finish up here very, very briefly, very quickly. Sabbath. Were the Jews serious about it or not? You awake? They were serious about it. I mean, they made a big deal about it. In fact, we're, uh, we should probably be a little bit more, I wish I had time to just expound on that. At some point, Michael and I will talk on this. Um, but this idea of Sabbath, they held very close to their heart, and they have these ways of playing it out. Well, the story comes up, and the story is not about practicing the Sabbath, but about who is Lord over the Sabbath. And in chapter 12, it says, At the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God and ate bread of the presence. It was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater, listen, something greater than the temple is here. That is direct communication. Jesus is saying the temple which you Jews prized so highly where the glory of God was to dwell, this prized possession of Israel, something greater than the temple is here. What could that be? The very presence of God in which the temple represented welcoming people in. He's saying, it's me. They're not going to get it. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. It gets worse for those who oppose him, because he went out from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out and was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
This story is magnificent because it's portraying the kingdom of God and healing and restoring who is Lord over the very commands that were given. But in turn, it also declares the kingdom is here with Jesus. And then the responses to Jesus, if you continue to read the chapter in which we do not have time, are two responses. The people say, could he actually be the Messiah? Much like John the Baptist. Is he the one? And then there's a group that says, this guy that's doing good to people, he has a devil in him. It's just like crazy talk in that very moment. And what Jesus is doing and showing is that the kingdom has come and it reveals their reactions. Finally, just to kind of close out this morning into chapter 11 as I wanted to talk about all three, we circle back John the Baptist. He's in prison. He's beat up. He's broken down. He's been doing the will of God. He's preaching Jesus. And now he finds himself with some doubt. As we alluded to last week, doubt's not the worst place to be at, but it's not the place to stay at. And what Jesus does is he's pushing you to a moment of crisis here this morning. And he says, look at the soil of your heart Look at who I am. And I know you have questions and I know you wonder why. And I know that sometimes you don't get why things play out the way they play out. Whether the brokenness of the world or your own sinfulness or the sinfulness of somebody else hurting and harming you. I will at some point step in and bring complete and full justice until then Christians participate in what is the goodness of God and bringing the kingdom and participation in the kingdom. But when we have these moments of doubt, this moment of crisis, we're left saying, are you the one, Jesus? And if he's the one, then be confident in that confession, regardless of your circumstances, that he is the Christ. That's what this block of teaching does for you, and it does for me. And we look at it in its entirety, and this morning was just our time to focus on the neutral response. Next week, I get to talk about the positive response and what that looks like. Then the week after that, Michael's going to discuss the negative response, which then plays into chapter 14 and the moving of the disciples going, you are the Christ. Well, when this response happens, uh, what, what really should it look like and act in our lives? And, and I don't want to miss this. If you just turn to chapter 12, verse 50, last verse, I'll read to you. It says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When Jesus ends on this idea, he's capping on, this is who the family of God is. Those who hear me and do my will. Where's your heart, church? It's okay if you're in this position of saying, I'm not quite sure who Jesus is yet. You know what you should do? Turn to the person who invited you here this morning. Have some conversations with them. Come talk to me afterwards. Let's hang out later. Let's talk about Jesus and answer some questions. If you're for Jesus, press in because the world wants to choke it out, wants to give you other cares and other worries, wants to get you off track. Press in even in the difficult and hard moments. Before we close out, I'm going to leave you with four questions to think on. Britton, you can flash them up there. What 
preconceived ideas or thoughts have I built up my theological or theology belief around the kingdom maybe need to be critiqued. We all have a lot of ideas when we walked in these doors this morning about God, about everything going on in the world today. What are some subversive critiques that the word of God would actually speak to our current cultural situations? Things that we think we're owed or deserved. And God is saying, whoa, wait a second. Let me bring you back to what it means to be in the kingdom. What critiques? Number two, how does Jesus describe kingdom people and in what ways is it shocking and what ways is it comforting? The Pharisees did not like how Jesus described kingdom people. How is that shocking and yet at the same time comforting? What is the will of the Father? And finally, where am I at? This moment of crisis that needs my attention, am I positive towards Jesus, negative towards Jesus, just curious and wondering. Do some of the work. Spend some time with him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your teaching and your word. Thank you for this time to set aside to actually dwell on your scriptures and think through how it might impact our lives. Thank you for ways in which we can leave this a little open-ended with a question and asking that you would move in those places. We fix our gaze, our focus, our hope, our life on you. May we respond in worship and in praise because you are worthy of it, but also in prayer and pleading and asking because we are dependent upon you. So God, move in our church in this moment. May we be honest with ourselves and honest with one another. Build into us. Amen. Amen.